ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Coming up, Blab and I go back to where it all stopped, the Players' Championship in TPC Sawgrass. Welcome to the Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. At the Arnold Palmer Invitational, Callaway was the number two ball in the field led by Chrome Soft X. Mark Leishman is playing a new Chrome Soft X LS ball, which Callaway just unveiled last week. Callaway was also the number two ball on the LPGA last week. Speaking of the LPGA, Epic was the number one driver model by far, and 32 players were using one of Callaway's new Epic driver models at the Drive-On Championship. To put that into perspective, no other brand had more than 29 total drivers in play at the event. Odyssey was the number one putter brand at Bay Hill with nearly 40% of all models in play. And once again, the new two ball 10 was Odyssey's number one model on the PGA tour on the LPGA. Odyssey was the number one putter and the new Odyssey white hot OG two ball was the number one model in the field. Lab, as I said, we're back at TPC Sawgrass and not only that, we're actually in the same room. We're literally, we're literally in the room where it all stopped. Yeah. We thought there was synergy. I don't want to get too, sappy about this you know we're looking back on a year we're going to talk about a feature that you did for golfchannel.com and, and a feature that you also did on air that we're looking forward to talking about however when it all stopped last year you and i sat in this exact same room it's actually sort of in the halfway house at tpc sawgrass it's where they do the interviews it's where steve sands is upstairs during the telecast and it was the only shady spot we could find on that friday when everything just halted and it was the only place where you and I could sort of sit down and try to put what happened into perspective. I'm sure we did not do a very good job of it. But now, 12 months down the road, we have the opportunity to sit back. And you did a really good story. I'm going to just leave it to you. I have a couple of questions about the story that you wrote that's on GolfChannel.com right now. But what was the one thing that stood out from all your reporting for this story? Well, first of all, uh, it is interesting in that when you look back a year later in, in hindsight, it's 2020, obviously. And, and so much is known now about the virus that was not known at the time. And so what was super interesting was that when we were doing this podcast a year ago, right? There was three of us in this little room. None of us were wearing, wearing masks because we didn't know that we need to wear masks. We were all sharing a lob mic, just passing it to each other in what a, a few separated by just a few feet. I mean, at the time, and this is important to, to note when you start to look back and do this uh, retrospective is that at the time it was all about hand sanitation and hygiene and, you know, washing your hands. And, and it was, it was strictly that you, you, the airborne nature of the virus was not yet known at the time. And so that was really influenced on a lot of the decisions that, that the tour decision makers were, were trying to make at that time. And so, when you look, you look back, back to, to, to Players, players Week, week um, 
and I kind of put this in the lead of the story, what stands out is really the speed of how everything unfolded that week. When you think of Monday of tournament week, Rex, we were just coming off the Arnold Palmer Invitational. It was a full media presence like usual. It was full fan attendance like usual. Like, there was zero expectation that this golf tournament was going to get canceled. Absolutely none, right? Like, that didn't even cross my mind that that was a possibility. And so you get to there on Monday, even Tuesday, there was the Chainsmokers concert, of course. Uh, which drew a lot of headlines in, in hindsight. Uh, Wednesday was a typical practice round day. Two, two questions total to players in pre-tournament news conferences were about the virus. Everything else was just tournament specific because, again, there was zero reason to believe that this tournament could get canceled. And so the fact that it mushroomed from an international incident into a global pandemic, the fact that they went from, you know, the PJ Tours flagship event to shutting it down. I mean, it was 24 hours from the NBA suspending its season until the PJ Tour uh, pulled the plug on what eventually became three and a half months of a shutdown of its own. It was just an unbelievable time. It's certainly a, a tournament a time period that I'll never forget, certainly professionally, certainly personally. Um, and it was just just kind of a, a surreal moment to, to look back a year later and think about just how much our world changed this, this week, 52 weeks ago. And it, it is a breezy read. It's long, but you have a tendency to get a little long-winded when it comes to your writing. That's what the editors are for. You, you, you have a tendency to gammer a little bit, but it, it was very, very well done. And there was two things that really stood out to me that, that I wanted to spin forward. One is Tyler Dennis, who is sort of the tour's day-to-day -day guy. He's the guy that sort of makes sure he's making sure the widgets are getting made day in and day out. He's not so much of a big picture guy that when things started to get sideways on Thursday and the conversation immediately went to, okay, on Friday, we're going to forge ahead, but we're going to do so without fans. Suddenly it was Dennis locked in a room with some of the other people he works with trying to come up with a way to how this would work. And I thought it was fascinating the way you spun it, that what they came up with that day was actually the blueprint that they used going forward when they did restart in June, many of the things, the ideas, the concepts that they had, these are things that they were going to end up using when they restarted. You would have no idea to know it at the time. Yeah, I mean, that came together in a, in a matter of hours, <laughs> the, the blueprint for how they're going to have the infrastructure uh, to to run a PGA Tour event with limited personnel on site. Now, in, in those matter of hours, they didn't come up with a blueprint for, you know, in our little world, how the virtual media center was going to work or how you know, the charter flight was going to work for players. Like those are all details that got hammered out over the three and a half month break. And really those things did get expedited uh, rather quickly. But in terms of having a limited personnel on site, that means a broadcast component and how that would work. That means having a volunteer base, which was cut from, I think, upwards of 800 people a day to basically just bare bones, you, you know, a couple hundred, which to run a golf tournament of this magnitude uh, is, is pretty significant. And so for Tyler Dennis and his team, which included Jared Rice, who's the executive director of the Players' Championship, they, they really rolled up their sleeves that day and, and came up with this plan. And so that was what they were going ahead with on Friday. Like, they had the plan in place. They were going ahead with just limited personnel. I remember it was 6.45 p.m., the PGA Tour on Thursday – sent out a release. This was after play had just wrapped up or just as it was beginning to wrap up. 
we all thought that when they sent out a release, it was going to be the cancellation. No, they sent out a press release at 6.45 p.m. on Thursday, the opening round of the Players' Championship, basically having an operations update, reaffirming its plans to continue, saying who this is who is going to be allowed on site and, and where all systems go. That was at 6.45. The PGA Tour announced around 9.30 on that Thursday night that they were canceling. So what happened in between those three hours from when you're, you're still going to continue, but with limited personnel, to 9.30, we're shutting this thing down, and the next month is canceled? What, what happened in between there? All right, I'm gonna, that's, a good, that's a good pause. So I, so I, because I want you to pause here because I do. we want to get to this money shot, which is you talking about exactly how they came to this decision because I think everybody wants to know this. However, in the grand scheme of things, paint me a picture of what that room was like. Paint me a picture of, give me an idea of exactly who was in that room and how these discussions were being framed in as much as every other sport was closing down. Every other sport, every other form of government, it seemed like was closing down. And golf was trying to be that one last bastion for obvious reasons. We can look back now and say, yes, we play golf in a giant field. It's the perfect sport for, sport for social distancing. However, eventually they ended up changing their minds. So paint me that picture. Yeah, I mean, it, it, at some point it becomes not just a, a business problem, but a, a, a communications crisis in, in terms of you can't just PR your way out of this. Like it, eventually you're just going to have to wave the white flag. And so this became a 14 or 15 hour crisis meeting on Thursday. A, a lot of the, the tour executives were down in the first tee, kind of sending the players off. And then they literally went back into what was called the boardroom um, in this, on the second floor of the TPC Sawgrass Clubhouse. And they just set up shop there for 14 or 15 hours, kind of working through the information in real time as, as it was being processed. And Thursday was a really busy day, if you can remember back a year ago. I mean, you had uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis saying that around noon that you should really uh, limit mass gatherings. That was the first time that, that had kind of come out. You had the NCAA cancel the men's and women's basketball tournaments, which is, a, which is a huge deal. You have all these different cancellations. I know Broadway like suspended their performances. It was, a, it was, just, a, it was just one cancellation after another that, that the tour was trying to make these decisions. And I think, you know, when you think about who was in the room, uh, Laura Neal, who's the kind of, um, Senior Vice President of Communications and Media Content for the PGA Tour. Uh, I think she came across uh, really well in that time in terms of in terms of being a leader and kind of kind of taking a stand. But one thing that she pointed out was that on Thursday morning, schools in in St. Johns County, which is where we are here in Ponte Vedra Beach, they were still open. Like Monahan, Jay Monahan's kids were still in school on the day that the PGA Tour and the basically the entire world stopped. So just think about that for, for a moment. So those are the types of decisions that Monahan and company had to make. They were still getting the full support of the World Health Organization. They still had the full support of the CDC. They still had the full support of the White House in terms of what they're what they're doing. But eventually, you just you can't be last. You, you can't be the last one to pull the plug. And that's what they were kind of working their way through over those 14 or 15 hours. Eventually just saying, we, we, we can't be the last to do this. I mean, there's a reason why it's getting shut down. And so that's kind of where, where they were um, on that Thursday night. Was there a straw? Was there one thing that Jay finally looked up and said, that's it, we're done? So there was one cancellation that, that hit harder than the others. 
you know, you have, you have baseball pausing spring training. You have the NBA, obviously the night before uh, tennis was shutting down. NASCAR was still deliberating, but the biggest one, interestingly enough, was Disney World. Right here in our hometown of, of Orlando, Florida, about 30 minutes from where I live, Disney World announced plans on that Thursday that they were going to be shutting down over the next couple of days. I think it was Sunday that they were planning to, to shut down for kind of an in, indefinite period of time. And that was the one. That happened. That was the moment at 8.30 p.m. on that Thursday night that the tour decided we, we, can't, we can't continue. So 6.45, operations up to date. 8.30, Disney World shuts down. 9.30, PJ Tour pulls the plug. And so that was the that was the the major cancellation just because in the state of Florida certainly you know, Disney World kind of kind of runs the show. It's it's the it's the barometer that everyone is 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 measuring up against. And so if Disney World is making the unprecedented move to shut down the next couple of days, that was kind of the, the red flag for the tour that they should do the same. And so that was the big one and there was just kind of this this dramatic moment that I tried to to spell out the story of of Laura Neal writing on this giant pad of paper what would reasonable people appropriately expect us to do that was the question that she wrote down and I think you know certainly in hindsight but at the time if you're looking out for the best interests of the players and the fans the answer the answer was obvious at that point after a wave of cancellations throughout the day the the obvious answer was was to shut it down. And so that's what they eventually did. Monaghan saw that on a piece of paper. He came into the room, saw that and said, like, I think, I, I think it's over. And it became an island that the tour just couldn't stay on by itself. I mean, you point to every other sport that was shutting down. Disney, as you pointed out, was a huge one. Disney was one that Jay had referred to numerous times in his multiple press conferences throughout the week as in the school districts are still open. Disney is still open. So once that fell, I can certainly see how that went the other way. Now, I want to get your idea on and we probably both have very, very similar thoughts about what it was like that day when we finally left here. When, when we show up on Friday, we're scrambling to try to talk to players as they throw their things in, in trash bags and, and leave town and trash the bags. They are, they're, they're, they're they multi-million dollars. But it was, it was, athletes. it was like, they know, but it looked like a traveling circus getting out of town. Like I've never seen like this scenario. We were here. I was here about 6 AM and watching players sort of come and go getting packing up their lockers and dragging it out to their rental cars and trying to figure out how they were going to get home and when they were going to play again. But there was one other quote that I wanted to touch on. And this is more, this kind of touches on more long-term, less about the actual players week and more about where Jay Monahan's mind was. And he said that as they were formulating a plan to continue play without fans, and the quote is, quote, we were comfortable that given the nature of the virus, we ultimately could stage the event. The very next half of that quote is, <laughs> We weren't comfortable that we were going to be able to continue that in the weeks that followed. That to me is one of the most eye-opening things I've ever heard Jay say about this entire process because he's never, I mean, he's a glass full kind of guy and he's never allowed, at least publicly that I have seen that, yes, we didn't know where we were going. We were on a train that was going nowhere when we didn't know how to, how to stop it. This is as close as I think I've seen him come to. And that just goes again to the fact that, that no one could have predicted at the beginning of players championship week that it was going to end four days later. Like it's easy for people to pop off on social media now or go on TV and criticize the, the tour. 
for for its handling of the players championship no one could have seen this coming no one like it happened that fast and so i think monahan obviously he was he was being truthful and that's and that's what he believes he he just didn't think that the wave had crashed on them yet like you could he could see it coming i, I have an anecdote in the story he was on cnbc on monday of players week kind of announcing the pj tour's new uh, media rights deal and there's this really awkward split screen of Monahan on CNBC. And he's talking about the tour's long-term stability. You know, they just got like a billion dollars a year that's going to be pumping in the tour over the next decade. Like, things are great for the tour. And on the other half of the screen, the stock market is just plummeting. There's red arrows pointing down. Like, like it's just absolutely tanking. The U.S. futures are absolutely tanking. And so it just kind of made for, for an awkward moment. And, and Monaghan was kind of sitting in the green room, listening to the guests who were on the show before him, just predicting this, these dire, significant uh, financial out, outcomes that, that they think are going to come from this coronavirus. And so, like, he knew the wave was coming. He figured that, you know, the Masters might be affected, that PGA and May might be affected. Like, it's coming. He just didn't think it was about to splash ashore four days after he appeared on CNBC. Like, it, that's that's really what the story is. And it's the speed. I mean, that's what you touched on. That was the lead. And you're right. I think it, all of us were taken completely aback by how quickly this just overwhelmed the entire situation. You mentioned Lucas Glover as someone, one of the few people who actually seemed to kind of call the tour out early in the process. He sent out a tweet that Thursday morning and it read, what, the rest of sports and media, why don't they drug test the PGA Tour? Tour, okay, we better start doing that too. Rest of sports and media, think we better stop and stay away from crowds. Tour, hold our beers, it's Players' Championship Week. And I only bring this up because I just got through talking to Lucas about this because I wanted to circle back around and I wanted to write something on, asked him specifically, what were your emotions? When you sent that tweet out, were you angry? Were you confused? In, in typical style, he goes, I was just trying to be funny. He goes, look, there was a disconnect there between what we were doing and what was happening in the rest of sports. He was trying to make light of it. it. It didn't come off perfectly in other circles. The part of this that I find interesting that when it comes to Lucas is he said, because there was no other information, there was a void of information at that point. Again, Thursday morning, Players Championship week. And I said, well, after you finished your round, you have sent this tweet out. It became sort of a media entity in and of itself. Did anyone approach you? Someone from the floor sit you down and try to talk to you about it. No one did. And I think that gives you an idea of the tour, at least on Thursday, was very much in scramble mode. They were in scramble mode. And again, what was known about the virus at the time and the intel that the tour was getting from the CDC was that they really did believe that golf was in an advantageous position to be able to spread out over hundreds of acres and to be able to spread out and not really congregate in certain areas. That was kind of the, the issue when obviously basketball arenas, which is the reason why they were shutting down because you, you know, you just wanted to have social distancing. I remember doing a podcast with Will Gray that week. And like, that was the first time we'd ever heard social distancing. Like, Oh, what does that mean? Six feet away. Like, are we supposed to have a measuring tape? Like it was, it was just kind of fun and games, but golf kind of lend itself to being in a better position. I think obviously that's what we've seen now these past couple of months in terms of, of being able to, to handle the virus and not necessarily be some kind of super spreader event. So in talking to Andy Levinson, who's kind of the 
he became he was the anti-doping czar and now he's basically doc levinson because he's doc levinson yes exactly uh, design the health and safety plan like they legitimately believed because they were getting the intel from the cdc that it was a differentiator that golf could be different that it could be spread out over hundreds of acres and be done safely they firmly believe that they still believe that now obviously some certain precautions have to be made we're all wearing masks this week this is the first time i think i've taken off my mask in a in a room in forever but it can be done safely but so little to lucas's point so little was known at the time that you're just trying to make an educated guess and by thursday night the tour just eventually had to throw up its arms and say collectively an our educated guess that it is best to shut down that is what a reasonable person would surmise is the best course of action here when we were here in this exact room 12 months ago did you even know what the term super spreader event was if no. I'd have said that to you, what would have been your response? I would have think, oh, is that like a, is that like murder hornets, or is that, a, <laughs> is that something else? That's some kind of apocalyptic uh, super spreader event? Uh, no, that sounds like something that you that you would have in college. And if I told you about, I don't know, Pfizer, if I, if I just said Pfizer to you, and you have to do get, get two shots, you you probably would have rolled your eyes and just walked away from me in a huff. I certainly wouldn't have been able to spell Pfizer. No, I, I wouldn't think so. I'm I'm not sure. I still can. It's quite tricky. Now that's what Google's for. But when we left this room 12 months ago, eventually, I I want to get like as I I vividly remember walking to my car and the way I was feeling. But I want to hear it from you first. See if we have the same emotions. Well, walking to my car. So personally, my wife on Thursday. No, Friday. Yeah, Friday. She got a call from my kid's daycare saying that, saying that our he would have been a little more than one at the time, that our kid was sick. Day, daycare called and said, your kid is sick. And so what's, what's your immediate response? I'm leaving a golf tournament because of the fear of the coronavirus, right? Like the world is shutting down, the PJ Tour is off for a month, and I get a call from daycare saying, that your kid, your kid needs to come be picked come up from school because he is because sick. He is what sick. do you think what that you think Cam, has? Cam has? You would think uh, he has the coronavirus, right? Of course, right. yes, yes. I mean, that's where you, as a parent, that's yes, where your mind's going. And to so get. people so are dying. dying. It's, it's kind of mysterious. Kind of mysterious. Obviously, you can't see it. So it's kind of this, this unseen enemy, right? Like, so it was it was a super nerve-wracking time. Cam, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, did not end up having uh, the virus. Um, but that it was just kind of like a tense time personally. Now, pro professionally, I kind of wondered what the hell we're going to do uh, without tournaments for for at least the next month. I figured that you know some some updates would would trickle would trickle out. That would kind of satiate our our website for the time being. I did not think that it was going to be three and a half months, just because I think there was some level of being naive in terms of 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 what this virus is. Could it be handled by just kind of shutting down and staying home for a little bit? Like. Would warm weather wipe it out? Like, again, there was so little known at the time that I think just in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, this thing will be, this thing should be phased out in the next couple of months. I'm curious to see if you had the same reaction. No, not exactly. And I've, I've said this story before, so apologies. I'm sure it's getting old by now. But as we were actually walking toward this, this room right here, and it was right after Jay had given his press conference. And I'm sort of scrambling and, and I'm myopic. I'm in my own little world. I'm trying to organize my thoughts. And I sort of walk by Jay in a huff and never look up and see him. 
And he finally looks at me and he goes, Rex, it's not that bad. And I remember looking back at him and thinking to myself, are you sure? Because I feel like it's that bad. Are you sure it's not that bad? Like, I really feel like it's bad. Like, I don't feel like it's good right now. And he and I actually talked about this just a few weeks ago in Los Angeles. And he remembered it vividly. And, and he actually said, I, I didn't know. He didn't know if it was that bad or not. You know, I think he was just trying to be what he normally is. He's a very optimistic person. I was not optimistic when I drove out of that parking lot. I did not think we would be back in a month. In a month. I didn't know when we would be back because they don't, again, talking with Lucas just now, his point was if this was any other event, the whole point of this tweet was to be funny and to point out if this was any other event other than the Players' Championship, would the tour be playing right? That was his mindset on that Thursday morning, given everything that was going on. I, it was certainly, in talking to the tour executives, it was certainly a blessing and a curse that it happened to be Players' Championship week. It was a blessing and that everyone who would be needed to make such a momentous decision was able to convene in a conference room in a matter of minutes, if not moments, right? Like everyone who is everyone at the PJ tour is here. It's a, it's an all hands on deck affair. It's obviously a huge media event for people like us, but on the PJ tour, this is, this is their Super Bowl. And so from that perspective, thank God for them that it happened here and not, let's say at the Pebble beach national pro-am where you're, you're trying to, to get everyone on a, on a conference call and, and make a decision from 3,000 miles away. That would have been disastrous. Now, on the, on the opposite end, it was, it was a curse because it was the Players' Championship. This is a $15 million event. First place gets like $2.7 million. It is the PJ Tours flagship tournament. It is arguably the fifth biggest tournament on the golf calendar, right? It is an right. enormous it deal. It does an enormous impact in this local impact. community. It community. welcome anywhere from welcome 40 to 50,000 spectators 50, a day. Huge deal. Huge deal. So from that perspective, they're so going to do everything the PJ Tour is. They're going to do everything possible to extend this. And I think, you know, in hindsight, that was probably to their detriment. And on the other hand, you could look at it and say, you know, thankfully they were all able to get in the same room and – and, and make the decision together. And that's why I wasn't optimistic when I got in the car to drive away. Because had this been had this been New Orleans, not to pick on New Orleans or Hilton Head or any other, let's call it a normal event, just a run-of-the-mill event, they're not having those extended conversations. There is not the reluctance to pull the plug. Like, I'm sure there was a massive amount of reluctance in oh, that room. Absolutely. And for all the reasons you just pointed out, it was a glorious moment for the PGA Tour. New media rights deal had just been announced. There were a lot of things moving in their direction despite the pandemic barreling down on us that we didn't know at the time. So for them to make that decision, obviously, was going to take a long time. So therefore, when I left here, I did not have much optimism that we were going to be back in a month or two months. Three months, for some reason, that sounded about you, you, right you to thought, me. You thought we were going to come back mid-June? Mid that, that felt right to me. I, I couldn't. I probably wouldn't have said that, that in that context but yes as we got towards summer the little bit we felt like we knew was okay as we get towards summer things will be better that's the only thing that that we knew it, to be true it turns out that i don't even know if that was true in retrospect but yeah i would have thought somewhere around midsummer what was not to not to jump ahead um but we're we're doing the the player shutdown obviously there's a three and a half month break and a lot goes into that and as i kind of point out in the piece there was two major issues 
that the tour needed to get through, right, in order to return to competition. The first one is determining the season-long schedule, and that was a, a basically a Rubik's cube that needed to be solved <laughs> over a matter of weeks as opposed to, to years normally. You know, there's a lot of moving pieces, so many organizations in golf, there's the USJ, the PGA of America, um, the RNA, like PGA Tour, the LPGA, like there was a lot going on that they needed to solve in a very short period of time, and Tyler Dennis and his team were able to do that. That's part one. Doc Levinson and the health and safety plan, that was an enormous piece that was helped in large part because of Sanford Health and stepping up with these mobile fleet units uh, where they could kind of bring the testing results uh, with them from tournament to tournament. That was kind of how that came back. But then to actually restart again at Colonial, you were there, one of the very few reporters who was there. Do you remember what it was like flying to Fort Worth for that first tournament, you know, in terms of getting in the airport, I, I have to imagine that was, that was quite barren and quite surreal. Uh, wildly uncomfortable. And, and I raised my voice on purpose. Wildly I uncomfortable. I thought it was just because you hadn't gone through puberty yet. No, no, no. Wildly uncomfortable. Now, I'm, two things are in play here. One, I am very, very loyal to one uh, airline. Yes. Everyone... Unlike you, I'm not going to drop with the, the name of whatever that airline is. For whatever reason, because of the pandemic, Hello, Delta. they were not flying to Fort Worth. So I had to fly with another airline. My and, God, the horror. Yes. But not only that, but that airline was filling folks up. There were no empty seats. So I was in a middle seat in the back of the plane, which under normal circumstances, I would not have liked because I am a snob when it comes to flying. I do it a lot. So yes, I am very much a snob. But in those circumstances, it felt like I'd been sent away for doing something very, very wrong. You were on a packed flight to Fort Worth? Yes. Wildly uncomfortable. Wildly uncomfortable. I would have thought there'd be seven people on that flight. This nope. is in the height of the pandemic. Keep, keep in mind, second week of June, things are still things are still not improved. Things did not improve by Easter, uh, as they were predicted. And so you get to the second week of June, and you're crammed in like sardines? Like sardines. 26B? Yes, it was awful. Now, wow. that being said, flying from Dallas the next week to Hilton Head, it... it was more what you would have imagined. It was probably only half full, if, if that. So it was a little bit more what we've come to expect when you get on an airline in this age. However, going there, it was uncomfortable. And that said, at Colonial, everything was new. We were trying to make sure we were doing everything right as far as the protocols. Hilton Head was not that way at all. Like it was, the world seemed to have descended on the island. It was at the time of year that people usually go there for vacation. And even though the tour was trying to run this closed shop, we're going to stick to our protocols thing. Hilton Head Island had no interest in that. And it was a zoo. And there was a moment when I think we can all remember that, yeah, this isn't the right way to go. Like, this is a bad idea for us to be in the middle of this. Yeah, obviously, you you were integral in the reporting on Nick Watney. Uh, when he tested positive, became the first uh, PJ Tour player to test positive. That'll certainly be a trivia question uh, over the next decade plus at your local, local Beefo Brady's. Uh, the, Travelers the, the Travelers Championship, uh, to me, seemed to be the turning point. A week after Nick Watney, there were more positives, more withdrawals, and it got, as, as Laura Neal said, there was kind of the same momentum and the same types of criticism all over again, what they had heard four months earlier at the Players' Championship. Why are you still playing? That, that was what was being discussed heading into the Players' Championship, just like it was at the Travelers' Championship. And, and Jay Monahan, to his credit, and I think he, he looks certainly wise in hindsight, he, during a hastily assembled 
virtual press conference, basically calmed the waters and said, we're going to have to learn to live with the virus. I remember writing a column off of that presser at the time, kind of in shock that he was not necessarily, you know, obviously he was forging ahead. He wasn't necessarily dismissing the threat of the virus, but he was just resolute in his belief that he had the proper system in place as long as the players and the caddies and the PG Tour they had they showed some type of personal accountability and responsibility like that was that was the integral component at the time everyone needed to be more responsible i think the travelers championship was a wake up call jay recognized that and really through the end of the year they had just kind of sporadic issues there was never another cancellation for the rest of the year they played 25 consecutive tournaments uh, all the way basically un until christmas uh, when the schedule opened up um and you had some high-profile WDs, whether it was Dustin Johnson or, or Adam Scott, but you you never had an issue again after after the Travelers where it felt like golf was doomed or that it, it almost felt like they were doing the wrong thing. And and I think Jay's press conference there was kind of the seminal moment for that. And I know I, I, I disagree with that. I, it was not his press conference that was the seminal moment. What was the seminal moment is when he sat down with the players and the caddies and he made this an either or proposition it was we're either going to follow these protocols to a t and there's going to be penalties if, you, if we find out that you are not following these protocols you're not going to get the stipend if you come down with the coronavirus which it was just huge to players because i mean it's a significant amount of money he made these very very clear that if we're not going to follow these rules we're not going to be able to play so for everything that he said in that he, press sc conference, he scared he scared the hell out of him yes it was a scared straight coming straight from the commissioner and it was a moment of leadership that I, I find fascinating in all this only because i believe it was the pivotal moment when everyone can look back even the jaded players even the jaded caddies who would tell you that oh this is a hoax and they, they exist but they never thought they weren't going to take it seriously in that moment in time looking at where the tour was, I think everybody got on board. And that to me is, is sort of that, that make that seminal moment when everything sort of switched and Jay said all the right things and the players and the caddies and the officials all got on the same page. And it, it really is a success story. It, this is going to sound like it's fluff and that we're just supporting the PGA tour. Like you would have a hard time a year later faulting the PGA tour for what they've done over the past year. It is incredible that they were able to crown a FedEx Cup champion last year. It's incredible that they have not had a significant super spreader event or any sort of work stoppage over the past year since they've come back. I mean, they're starting to now incorporate fans, and I think that's going to be an interesting experiment to see how this goes. We're anticipating anywhere from you know, 10 to 12,000 fans this week. There was 5,000 at Bay Hill. It seemed like there was 5,000 on the sixth hole alone. And so it slowly, finally, a year later, feels like we're we're returning to some semblance of normalcy. And I, I think there's a there's some things that you can fault the PGA Tour for its response and the way that it's returned over the past year is is not one of them. I think from from Jay on down, they really should be applauded for how they stood up in a time of a time of with this devoid of information this dearth of information and they came out and were really strong leaders. And I think you can say that not every sport did that. I mean, I think certainly financially you look at baseball and, you know, we're starting 
to hear about things that happen in baseball that are going to create these financial problems for both players and owners. You talk about the salary cap going down in the NFL. I don't know that it's ever gone down before. I could be wrong on that. But, I mean, there are there are other leagues that stumbled along the way, whereas the PGA Tour, you're absolutely right. Before we get out of here, I do want to touch on what happened last week at Bay Hill. And it, I always want to just open the curtain just a little bit and talk about the text that you sent me on Sunday about, I believe you actually sent it on Saturday afternoon and you wanted to go out and cover the event. And we're only allowed one reporter per outlet. There was our reporter there and you were kind of grumbling about it because you did want to be there. And I knew immediately why you wanted to be there. It's because Jordan Spieth was back in the hunt and this was going to happen. Now my snarky journalistic every, response every, was literally, literally every time he's within three shots <laughs> of the lead heading into the final. Like, hey, can I, can I go to, can I go to colonial? Uh, do you mind if I go up to the, I go up to Detroit? Come on, this, is, this is the time. Uh, my snarky journalistic response was why you think Jordan's going to win. Don't you? And your response was, don't you? And no, I, that's, this is, this is factually incorrect. Go on. You then. said, by all means, are you banking on a Jordan breakthrough? Okay. Okay. I'll give you that. I said, not ruling it out. I am. You responded. I am. I think I will rule it out. <laughs> to which I responded, once a hater, always yeah. a hater. And now you and nothing could be further from the truth. So you, I have to I have to give you credit here. You said no hate. I love the kid. I just don't think he's there yet. You must you must have known that we were gonna talk about this on the podcast. You must have known that he was gonna shoot 75 in the final round and finish in a tie for fourth, his third uh, top five in his last four starts. You had to have known that. Because normally you you jump all over my boy. You mean I, I say that but he's were, not going to win? But you were measured and nuanced. It, yes, it, it seemed to be it seemed to be proper foreshadowing of exactly <laughs> what happened on Sunday. Well, and the reason I did that is because I had a flash back to last week's podcast, whereas you and I got in a, a very heated give and take over Colin Morikawa, and your line was ten to twenty PGA Tour victories. And I just wanted you to talk you down from the tree. I wanted you to take a deep breath. I'm not saying he's not going to win 10 to 20 times, which again is a lot of real estate. And I'm not saying it's that, not that much real estate. It's six more wins. If he gets six more wins, the difference in, between 10 zone. wins and 20 wins is, is the hall of fame career. That's we, why we can, I said 10 to 20. Yes. All right. Well, then, then it's a very convenient number. You could throw out 10 to 30, but no 10 to 20 feels like your comfort spot. Yeah. So, I'm, very, I'm extremely comfortable in that range. This is no hate towards Colin Morikawa, and it's certainly no hate towards Jordan Spieth, who I think does such great things for the game. I've always argued that golf was at its best when Phil Mickelson was at his best because you could simply always count on Tiger Woods. But when Phil was playing well, you had this rivalry, you had this experience, you had sort of these personalities going head-to-head -head that were awesome. Same thing about Jordan Spieth, and regardless of who he's playing. So who's, who's, who's Jordan's Tiger? It's been a number of different people. I mean, and it's going to continue to be a number of different people. And I would say he's continues to trend in the right direction. There's a reason to smile about Jordan Spieth's game. He put himself back into contention. I'm still not convinced he's there yet. Eventually, I truly believe he will. But last week wasn't the week. Not with Big Bryson swinging for the fences. So why do you think he's able to do it on Saturday, but not on Sunday? Oh, it's, I think it's all about trust, right? So it's it's the same thing that we've talked about about other tour players. And in this particular case, he has gone through these massive painful dramatic whatever word you want to use swing changes and that they look really good at home they look really good on the range and he's gotten to the point where they feel really good on thursday friday and mostly on saturday getting them to feel really good late on a sunday is that last piece of the puzzle 
And I just don't see that level of confidence there yet. I'm not saying it's far away. I just didn't see it there yet. So he shot 75 on Sunday. He was briefly he was briefly tied for the lead. I think after he birdied the sixth hole. So the leaders were, you know, kind of on that that third, fourth, fifth hole stretch. Um, and he, he, you know, Spieth bogeyed three of his last four holes. He three putted from about 30 feet on 16. Uh, he could have inched a step closer. You know, 75, that was that was the scoring average on Sunday at Bay Hill. Um, I am with you in that it sounds weird to say about a guy who has three major championships and who has, I think, won, what, 11 or 12 times on the PGA Tour that he kind of needs to relearn how to, to win. times on the PGA Tour. He's certainly in that 10 to 20 range. Uh, but that he, he really does, like, need to relearn how to win the PGA Tour because, because it's been that long. It's been since the 2017 Open at Birkdale since he has won. And so I think this past month has just been so instructive and so important for Spieth's development because he's a different player now at 27 than he was at 23. Like, there's just no doubt about it. And so for, for him to understand how his body reacts in that moment, how his swing, which is, which is held up under Cameron McCormick, um, how it kind of holds up in those tense moments, I think is, is just so pivotal for him. And, and you're right. There is zero doubt that Jordan is on the right track now. Like, I think everyone after Phoenix, they kind of thought it was a mirage. After Pebble, they thought, oh, you know, it's, it's two in a row. It's nice to see, you know, Rib, he was in the mix uh, heading into Sunday there. Uh, this one reaffirmed for me. On a golf course he's never seen, on, and he's, he doesn't typically play well in Florida. It'll be interesting to see how he plays at TBC Sawgrass because his, his record here is terrible. Um, but Jordan's hallmark of his game is his iron play. That was the reason why he was the best player in the world. And he won three, three major championships was his iron play and his iron play is very much back. I know how much you love, I know how much you love stats Rex. Jordan Spieth has been top 10 in three of his past four weeks on the PGA tour in strokes gained approach. If that continues, he's going to pick up that W very, very shortly. How much as I love reading on a podcast that just makes for such a very good podcast. Now we can't do, this week's version of what's on the grill with Lav because we're both on the road. Wait, so are we going to talk about Spieth but not Bryson? Uh, Bryson, uh, Bryson won the tournament. No, no, no. And, and Big Bryson certainly deserves uh, an entire pot of his, himself. There was other things we needed to get to. But I'll, I'll give you your your two minutes of fame when it comes to Bryson if you'd, if you'd like to get into this. I don't know if it's going to be famous. Uh, but I do think it was a, a, a pretty interesting sequel to, to what we saw at Wingfoot for the U.S. Open, right? Like, after I remember leaving, talking about leaving the Players Championship last year, leaving Wingfoot, it, we we thought we thought the game had changed, right? Like I'm I'm pretty sure we said we saw the podcast, like the game has changed forever. The the way that he just absolutely manhandled one of the most difficult golf courses on the planet, golf's most tor- most most torturous test, the way that he handled himself there. Um, I think we were all predicting big things. And I like that was quite, golf's quite, most torturous phrase right there. Uh, quite frankly, he just hasn't played well uh, over the past five or six months. And so for him to do what he did at, at Bay Hill, and I will continue to say this. I will say it until I'm blue in the face. Bryson's biggest advantage is not necessarily his distance. The distance is great. He's hitting sand wedge and lob wedge into par fives like he did on the sixth hole. I think that's terrific. I think that's an enormous advantage. However, his biggest advantage is going to come from the fact that he's so far down the fairways, he's able to hit short irons from four to five inch rough 
when other guys are hitting six and seven iron and unable to hold the greens. That's where his advantage is coming from. He's stronger. He has a steeper angle of descent, so he can hold these these firmer uh, greens, and he can hit on par threes, eight irons, when other guys are hitting five irons. That is an enormous advantage. It does not get talked about enough. No, and we're going to get fixated. And look, that was entertaining, what he did at number six. And it was fun, and it was fun to see Lee Westwood get into the fun, you know, on Sunday as he watches Bryson almost drive the green on the par five. And then he stands up and does the same thing, but does his right down the middle of the fairway and celebrates. The exact they didn't even, they didn't even change the, the camera angle. They did Lee Westwood so dirty there. Yeah, they no, couldn't it, even, they couldn't even shift behind him. Couldn't even do something nice. Uh, but I was curious, but it, and I kind of rolled my eyes and I shouldn't have done this because look, he, number one, he's entertaining and he's fun for the game. And I think anything that brings some of that into our sport is good. And two, I do think he's genuine. I think he owns everything that he does, whether if that's trying to hit the ball a mile or improves his putting incrementally, whatever the case may be. But I was curious, like on this particular hole, on number six, which received so much focus last week, on Sunday, did he really gain that much on the field? So I actually texted Mark Brody. He gained a full shot. He's not quite a full shot. Not, not, not the next closest was 0.6 strokes gained off, off their drive on that particular hole. His was 0.9, which is amazing to me. So you're right. He absolutely destroyed the field with one swing of the golf club. I mean, that and what, is amazing. And what was Bryson's margin of victory? And one what? shot. It, yeah. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. Like, I can't be cynical about this. I'm sort of owning it. That look, it's easy for me to roll my eyes, and it's because, and I'm not giving away secrets here. I think there's a lot of players on the PGA Tour who roll their eyes when you bring this up to them, simply because they're kind of tired of hearing about it, and they don't believe he still just birdied the hole. There were a lot of people who birdied the hole. It's how he birdied the hole that makes it so impressive and makes it so fun. It's how he birdied the hole. And, and look, Bryson isn't ripping off top finishes like DJ was doing for six or seven months or like Tiger did for, for a dozen years. Like it's not, he's not a dominating presence on the PGA Tour yet. I think the potential is there if he shores up his wedge game, which has kind of always always been a bugaboo it's this weird complicated formula where he's still using the six iron shaft and his wedges gives him some advantage in terms of angle descent but it's really hard for him to control his spin and control his distances and so like until he shores up that aspect of his game there's going to be weeks where he, where he just doesn't play well you know his driver's gonna be a little bit errant he's not gonna get good lies maybe his, the putts don't fall whatever the case may be he's not there yet but the potential is there, and that's what's so intriguing for Bryson. I'm not sure he's ever going to get to a point where he's going to win 10 to 12 times, like a season on the PGA Tour, and just be this historically great player. I don't think he's going to get there. I think he's going to continue to kind of work himself into a tizzy at times. He's going to push the limits when kind of it would be better off if he just maintained. But that's, that's just who he is. He's, he's not necessarily a golfer. Like, he doesn't love to play golf. What he loves to do is work and experiment. That's where he derives his joy and his enjoyment with, with the game is, is the work. And, and winning at the U.S. Open and winning at Bay Hill is, is not going to change that. He's, he's very much on his own path. Well, and again, I think anything that brings entertainment to the game, I'm going to appreciate that a little bit more than I would have otherwise. We can sit here, I can make the argument that whatever experiment he was trying to pull off at the Masters last fall probably cost him a legitimate shot to win the Masters, considering where his game was. 
That being said, had he not spent the entire week tinkering with a 48-inch shaft in his driver, maybe he doesn't get to where he was last week and he doesn't win Bay Hill. I don't know. This is all a zero-sum game, so I don't think it's one we can really play. I just would like to see him be a little bit more focused just on the incremental gains around the greens at Augusta National, maybe you know from the rough at the U.S. Open, whatever the case Maybe. All right. Uh, that is going to do it. We, we do not have a what's on the grill with lab this week because he is not home. He will not be grilling. But do you have any where you would recommend to eat this week? Uh, Taco Lou uh, in, in non-COVID times. Uh, they have outdoor dining. Be terrific. You don't think that's going to be packed during tournament week? Uh, may, maybe. It's going to be limited seating. Uh, we're staying we're staying in a new hotel this week. Normally, <laughs> normally we're uh, in Jack's Beach uh, at a lovely courtyard that that you and I enjoy so much. You can you can go surfing in the morning. Uh, I can FaceTime my my wife and kid and show them how, how glorious life is on the road as, as I look out from, from my balcony on, on the Atlantic. Uh, however, we do not have that this week. So this is going to be a, a whole new experience. I do know uh, what is Nona Blue. Yes. I believe Nona Blue is right, right around there. I will definitely be making a stop there uh, for some lobster mac and cheese. Nona Blue. Uh, and I strongly recommend anyone go to golfchannel.com, check out Lab's feature on really what happened at last year's players, the entire story being told. And your feature on, on air feature is going to run what day? I think it runs tonight, Monday night. And it'll be, they're going to they're gonna run it a lot, to be honest with you. Yeah, you'll see it. Just turn on Golf Channel. That'll do it for this edition of Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.